This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. As an adult, it's easy to look back on childhood as a simpler time. And part of that is, interestingly, baked into our brain chemistry. Studies have been done that show how children develop certain skills like categorization and identifying cause and effect very slowly, often needing to get them wrong on the path to getting them right. This means that teaching children things like morality often starts off with more rigid binaries of good and bad and leaves nuance to come later. In this week's story, Second Story company member Reshmi Hazwar-Rustabake shares her own story of a particular lesson she learned as a child, how it followed her into adulthood, and eventually, how she fought to broaden her own sense of responsibility. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in December 2023, Second Story is proud to present The Punishment Plan. was one of my favorite teachers reading one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Usually, I was getting in trouble for hiding reading books inside of my textbooks, so reading time in class was almost like heaven. Mrs. Elizabeth would call us over to the reading nook, and I would make my way over silently gleeful. The reading nook was designated by a soft, fuzzy rug in the corner among wondrous bookshelves covered in stories just waiting to unfold. On this particular day, we got comfy and cozy so that Mrs. Elizabeth could read us this week's chapter. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing ever, nothing is ever going to happen again. There the fourth graders were, sitting on the reading nook floor, cozy and snuggled, doing my favorite activity. I should have been over the moon. Instead, I felt as Susan and Lucy in the book did, like nothing good was ever going to happen again. Darcy, my supposed friend, was sitting next to me, but instead of making funny jokes about the book or whispering plans about the weekend, she sat next to me, pinching me continuously. I had met Darcy when my mother made me join the local Girl Scout troop so that I would have friends when I started my new school this fall. I don't think this is what my mother had in mind. I should have said something to Mrs. Elizabeth so that she could have witnessed the pinching. Because she'd never been able to catch Darcy in the act, Darcy couldn't be punished. It was just my word against hers. But I couldn't bring myself to tell Mrs. Elizabeth because there was something I hadn't told anybody yet. I was pretty sure that my friendship with Darcy was God's punishment for how badly I butchered my friendship with Nina. At my old school, I was king of the castle. It's how I got Nina to go on the monkey bars when she didn't want to. She ended up cracking her ribs, but I figured that was a small price to pay for being in my orbit. (laughs) One time, I iced her out at a sleepover at my house because I was jealous that she might like another friend more than me. 
But the piece de resistance was when I made her use oil to make eggs, we weren't even supposed to be cooking. And we ended up shattering a bowl in her parents' kitchen and she sliced her foot open. <laughs> and I stood there telling her, keep it down so that we don't get in trouble. I loved this girl, but sometimes I wonder if I was the worst part of her childhood. Soon after she cut her foot open, my mother announced that I was going to change schools, and a dark thought warmed its way into my head. This was God's punishment for my bad behavior. I had attended a Christian church camp that summer, and the idea of punishment burrowed into everything I did. So I figured if I prayed every night, like 10 times a night, maybe Durga or Krishna, they would know that I was sorry, and maybe I could just stay at my school. But I guess they felt differently since their mercy was pinching me when I should have been enjoying the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I started keeping a list of all my punishments from God. Growing up in a Hindu and Christian household, I may not have known what God looked like or sounded like, but I knew they were all powerful and that they used their power to punish me for my sins. What does a Hindu Christian household look like, you might ask? Well, both my parents are Bangali, born and raised in India, but in two completely different faiths. My dad's Christianity was, and remains, important to him, but it was put on a back burner because the Anglican Church excommunicated him for having the audacity to love my mother. But Hinduism? It was everywhere. We had a little takul card from my grandmother, a space where she could do her morning and evening pujas. It was full of images of all of our family's gods, Krishna is my family's favorite, but I'm mostly partial to Durga because she's a badass woman. <laughs> my grandmother even had a picture of white Jesus. <laughs> you know, just to cover all the bases. <laughs> While the specific God didn't matter in our home, believing in something did. To be on the safe side, I added God to everything. My behavior and subsequent consequences became markers from the universe. God approves, God does not approve. I got the Barbie dream house for Christmas. God was really happy about my good grades. My brother broke my weaving, punishment for making Nina go on the monkey bars. No boys liked me in my high school. I thought I talked too much in class. When it took me six months to get pregnant for the first time in 2019, this was tacked on to my punishment for crimes yet unnamed. No matter how hard I had prayed for motherhood, this deep aching desire would likely go unfulfilled. So when I finally did get pregnant, I was skeptical. I was sure that I shouldn't enjoy it too much because eventually the other shoe would drop. And sure enough, it stopped on me. We lost the baby at eight weeks, and since then we have struggled to get pregnant again. We went through fertility testing and treatments, only to be told we were part of the population with unexplained infertility. Nothing wrong with his body, nothing wrong with mine, just the luck of the draw. You could not tell me that this wasn't part of the punishment plan. But almost two decades ago, I had a glimpse at a life without punishment. That summer, I was constantly on pins and needles, 
I had never prayed so hard in my life. My father was having open heart surgery, but because of a summer school commitment, I couldn't be home. My god sister and I planned for an equally lazy and busy day to keep our minds off of the surgeon's scalpel and potential for so many things to go wrong. We already had lost her father to a bad open heart surgery, and years later we stood in the same spot all over again. By holding each other's hands, we hoped to get through it. But I prayed anyway, hoping that I could preempt any ideas that God had about all of this. The morning of the surgery, I sprang out of bed, ready to throw on some pajamas, and head uptown to the sanctuary of her one bedroom in Spanish Harlem. I noticed my voicemail symbol, though, with her number glowing next to it. Uh, hey, Rish, I had to fly to California. I'll talk to you later. Every time I tried to call her, it went straight to voicemail. Now I had the surgery and her disappearance on my plate. I kept weighing the possibilities. What could have happened? Her sister, my other god sister, lived in California. Did something happen to her or her family? Was this a sign? Was dad's surgery going to go badly? What did all of this mean? What it meant was that my dad had made it through his surgery that we had been dreading, yet somehow my other god sister passed the same day. In what could be seen as a freak occurrence, she had a brain aneurysm. And the young mother of two closed her eyes just as my father opened his. Because that wasn't how my brain worked, I spent the next 24 hours trying to figure out what I had done that had caused this cascade effect. Did I ask for my dad's life too much? Was God balancing the sheets? In order for Baba to survive, did Ritu Didi have to be taken? While I was walking to work the next day, my brother called me. He was back in Los Angeles after a whirlwind 36 hours in Ann Arbor, holding my mother's hand under the hospital fluorescence. What is the point of all of this? She was a young mother of two, and now her boys have to grow up without a mother? Why did dad survive and she didn't, she didn't deserve to die? I could hear the cars drive past as he waited for the bus. As he tried to console me through his own grief, I couldn't help but keep pushing it. I mean, I was yelling on a New York City street, my final rite of passage to solidify my true New Yorker status. <laughs> the construction workers that usually catcalled me stayed silent and moved out of my way. Why did God do this? After I finally quieted down, my brother slowly said, I just don't see God that way. Well, what do you mean? Well, God going tit for tat. If that was the case, what did, what did people in war-torn regions do? Do you think they deserve that violence? or when someone is murdered or raped. God is not invested in checks and balances. God isn't giving us our hard times. God helps us deal with what is hard. Now, I wasn't completely converted by the end of this conversation. If that was true, what had I been praying for this whole time? 
did those prayers go unnoticed or unanswered? What was I supposed to do moving forward? What was I supposed to ask for? And if all those prayers were ignored or unanswered, then what did God give me anyway? The first time we had a miscarriage, we were asked if we wanted to do IVF, and I had a strong objection. While I had long since stopped analyzing every little thing I did wrong, I was now analyzing every fifth thing. I kept wondering, why were we struggling with this? Had I done something worthy of punishment? I had heard a friend and she had stopped speaking to me. Was this the inevitable conclusion? Was God trying to tell me something? It all came to a head when I had my second miscarriage this spring. We had stopped trying in any kind of earnestness. It had been four years since we had started, since we lost our first baby. And I had made peace with what it might be to be childless. In fact, I was pretty excited. I could stop living in the what might be and finally live in the present. We could travel, we could eat at fancier restaurants, we could enjoy nature and our sweet dog. We would be happy no matter what happened. But all of a sudden, I found myself late. I kept putting off taking the test, not sure what outcome I was hoping for. Of course, the test turned out to be positive, and my husband and I stared at each other, not sure if we wanted to celebrate or... But after a few days, we had our answer. We were elated. Parenthood had eluded us for so long, but here was what my entire life had led up to until the first ultrasound. Just like before, the embryo was measuring too small and the heartbeat was not strong enough. We asked ourselves if it was our fault. We weren't excited enough. Maybe God sensed it. Took it away from us. But those were just words we whispered in the dark, hoping that no one else could hear us. I think I'm ready to try IVF. A month after my DNC, we were driving back from my aunt's house, windows cracked to let the fresh, almost summer air in. As air absorbed this, I stayed silent. What made you change your mind? He finally asked. I said, I'm ready to stop punishing myself for something my body is struggling with. I'm ready to try everything I can to have our baby, and I'm ready to realize that just because it's hard doesn't mean that God or the universe or whatever has decided that it's not for me. I want to decide for myself. Unbeknownst to me, I had internalized this that this fertility journey, this struggle, had been the tax extracted by God. I had a good marriage a lovely dog, a roof over our head that was our own, what more could I have wanted? Though I knew God wasn't keeping score, apparently I still was. 
In that month post-miscarriage, I had time to sit down and think, time to process my pain. Today and every day, there are so many people losing children, whether inside their bodies or outside. My loss wasn't designated for me and me alone. After losing another baby, after surviving another grief, I could finally accept that it wasn't my punishment, just like it wasn't anyone else's. It was just life. We are in the middle of our second IVF cycle right now. It has been difficult, but no more difficult than making peace with not being a parent, no more difficult than recovering from burnout, no more difficult than any of the other hard things that I've had to do. I know God is there somewhere with me, though I no longer pray for things to happen, rather just for some peace for myself as I figure it out. Recently, my mother-in-law said that she was praying for us to have a baby, and it stopped me in my tracks. Initially, I wanted to reject the idea. Hadn't I just spent all this time trying to unlearn this concept of asking and receiving time and punishment? But one of my closest friends gave me a lovely insight. She said, there is a scripture, I believe Matthew 18:20, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I realized God is wherever we ask them to be. It may not be about getting our desired outcome, but asking God to be present in the process can't hurt. This story was produced by Jenna Myers, curated by Ami Tin, and directed by Brandy Jimenez Lee. Music and sound engineering was by Nathan Kistler. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. To be the first to hear about updates and new episodes, sign up for our podcast listserv at 2ndstory.com backslash podcast, or subscribe to the Second Story podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.